All right, if you're not in a group, clearly the message is get in a group, amen? All right, get to know some people and uh, maybe even improve, who knows, right? But uh, hey, it's so good to be with you today. Today we're uh, in a study on kingdom discipleship. It's based on my newest book, Kingdom Discipleship, and we are just following chapter by chapter. Today we're going to talk about the Bible. That's a good thing, right? But we're going to hopefully give you some stuff that you're going to learn and be challenged by about the Bible as well as what's in the Bible. So my first encounter with the Bible followed a really serious uh, experience at a concert, a rock concert, and uh, none of us were really in our right mind that night, and we got in the van to leave, and my friend Jim looked over at me and goes, I don't know about you, but I'm going to read the Bible when I got home. And it was because the concert was just like, it felt so evil and so oppressive, and, and I, I looked at Jim, and I said, me too. I didn't even know if we had a Bible. I got home about 3 a.m. I'm looking around to find a Bible, and I opened it up, and I got to the front part of it into a part called the genealogies. That's mean where it tells about everybody who was born by everybody. And it said, so-and-so begot, so-and-so begot. Both. And I'm going like, well, this is not good. Why would Jim want to read this? And so I put the Bible up, didn't read it. I was a pre-law student. Uh, I picked up a book about the return of Christ, started reading it. It scared me to death. I got a Bible. I started reading it. And I, this time a New Testament, I read the New Testament through four times in the first month. I didn't know how to pray. I got on my knees. I said, God, if you can hear me, here I am in Aurora, Colorado, and I, and I believe what I've been reading about Jesus. And you know what? My life changed that day. I got saved that day. Didn't know all the terminology, didn't know any Christians, but God radically changed my life. You know how he did it? The Bible. Because the Bible is the Word of God. Now, what does that mean? When we say that, when we say the Bible is the Word of God, what are we really trying to communicate? We're communicating that this is the revelation of God to man. It is his nature, his character poured out and given to us that we might understand. And by the way, do you know that you can read the Bible, not understand it, and still be blessed? Because it's the Word of God. You say, I'm reading along. I don't know what's going on here. But all of a sudden, God will just start talking to you little by little. And you go, wow, that's amazing. It's amazing. Now, the Bible is unique. It's not like all other religious books. A lot of people say, well, the Bible is just like all the other religious books out there. No, it's not. Not anywhere close. Do you know that the Bible is the only one that contains predictive prophecy about future events? Jesus alone in his coming, he fulfilled almost 200 prophecies that were prophesied thousands of years before, written down for our instruction. No other religious book can do that. Not only that, but it, it's, it can be verified historically. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, but let me give you a quick overview. So the Bible was written over a span of 1,500 years by 40 different human authors inspired by God on three different continents in three different languages. Now, you say, well, that's amazing, and yet it's got, this, it's got this cohesion about it. How is that possible? Let me give an illustration. Let's suppose you were in Italy, and you found a piece of stone, and you could tell it was a sculpture of something, but you didn't know what it was. And then you travel, and you went over to Asia, and you found another piece, and then you went over into another part of the world, and you found another piece, and by, by the time you got done assembling this, over a long period of time, and you assembled it, and you now have a statue of Venus. And what's your conclusion? Your conclusion is one person carved that statue, and somehow its parts got spread all over the world. We don't know how that happened, but clearly they all fit together, they all come together, and they make one object. Well, that's what happened with the Bible. 
And so the Bible is that kind of an object. It is that kind of a tool that God has used. There's another thing called Bible code. So there's this guy, and he, uh, he takes the Bible, and he takes the Torah, that's the first five books of the Bible, and he puts it into a computer, and he begins to run analysis and systems on it, and he comes to an amazing conclusion, that is there's a code within the Bible. So let me just show you one. Here's a, here's a slide that shows you a few books of the Bible, and it's in Hebrew, and the, the Hebrew language is, um, is, is an, actually an Eastern language. It actually uh, paints pictures. They're called pictographs, and so each little letter means something. You know I've highlighted uh, a couple of letters there because what he discovered in this process was, you notice the first T up there. That's uh, the tau up there, and uh, in Genesis, and then he began to go through it, and he realized that he could count every 50 letters, you would find the word Torah spelled out. He found that to be true in Genesis. He found that to be true in Exodus. Then he went to Numbers, and he realized that, way Numbers and Deuteronomy, the Torah is also written out, but this time it's written out backwards. Very interesting, but again, 50 letters. And so then he goes to the book of Leviticus, and every seven letters, it spelled out the word Jehovah, Yahweh, the name of God. Now, you say, isn't that a coincidence? It's really not because the number seven is a divine number. It means a number of completion. Seven sevens is celebrated as on the 50th year as a jubilee year. So everything is very intricately put in there. And then he also began to run some more tests, and he found out that, that prophets that weren't even alive yet and some prophecies that were found in some of the later uh, books of the Bible were actually given in there. He went to a very, very um, wise uh, scholar who was actually Jewish. He was a rabbi, and he asked him, he showed him these things, and the rabbi said this. It, to, to his amazement, the rabbi said, yes, we know that. Because we count letters, all the numbers have meaning. Like the number seven is a number of completion. Number eight is, is a number of new beginnings. So we have seven days to complete a, a day. The eighth day is a new beginning. Piano, same thing, seven notes, you start over on the eighth note. And so there's this magical things that just happen in the Bible because God put them in there for a reason. He wanted us to understand a little bit about his nature. Now there was a guy that lived in France around the time of the American Revolution. His name was Voltaire. And Voltaire was a writer philosopher, but he was also a critic and a skeptic of the Bible. And this is what Voltaire wrote. He said, it took centuries to build Christianity, but I'll show uh, how one Frenchman can destroy it within 50 years. So he made it his aim in life to destroy the credibility of the Bible and to kill Christianity out altogether. Now, Voltaire died a very miserable death. In fact, on his deathbed, he, he didn't repent, but he said, I know that I've, um, that I've failed and I know that God can't love me. So he's acknowledging God on his deathbed, but he never came to faith in Christ. What's amazing about what happened, the estate, the vast estate that he was on, was purchased after his death by the Bible Society, and they printed and stored Bibles there, and after that, it was then the headquarters for the British Missionary Society. So it's almost like, yeah, that didn't work, Voltaire. 
You tried to destroy the Bible, but it was indestructible because it is the word of the living God. So let's talk about the Bible as the word of God. By the way, I'm speaking a little bit quicker because we did a little bit more music and we have baptism, so I can get my sermon done in, in about 220 words a minute. If y'all can listen, amen? Y'all got that? That means it's gonna be a little quicker, but you gotta listen a little longer. Okay, so it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, it says all scripture, say all. That means all. It doesn't mean you get to pick which ones you like and approve of and choose to follow. It says all scriptures, look, is given by inspiration. That word inspiration, we use it a lot in our society, but it literally is a Greek word that means God breathed. So God breathed into life, his life, into the word of God, and it's profitable for you. In fact, it's profitable in that it's going to teach you, that's doctrine, reproof, correction for instruction in righteousness. So how am I going to know how to live my life? The Bible. I got a car. It's got an owner's manual. I can choose to ignore it, but the car's not going to work as well if I ignore it, right? Oh, mean it needed oil? I didn't know that. And so you see, the thing about your life is you, you have an owner's manual and it says, this is how you live out your life in the best possible way. Now, how many have heard of the Hubble telescope? Anybody? I want to talk a little bit about scientific evidence. A lot of people say, well, you know, I believe in science. I don't believe in the Bible. Did you know that the Bible has a lot of science in it? It's not a science book, but where it speaks of science, it's accurate. So there was a guy named Hubble, and, and that's where the telescope was named from. Well, in 1929, he came up with this idea that the uh, galaxy that the universe were in was expanding. And all scientists up to that point, including Einstein, said, no, it's not expanding, it's fixed, it's, it's static. And all of a sudden, they all changed their mind because of the Hubble telescope, and they said, wait a minute, the universe is expanding. What I find interesting is the Bible says that in the oldest book of the Bible, that is the book of Job, and it says that in Job, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Zechariah, it says our universe is constantly expanding. How did they know that? How did biblical writers know that unless God was the author and gave some insight into it? There's a book called Jonah. A lot of people say, I don't believe that you know, Jonah got swallowed by a whale. Okay, then let's just talk about his science. How, how did Jonah know that there were mountains underneath the sea when we didn't discover that until the last 100 years? How did he know that? How did he know that there were these aquifers and these, these streams that came out of the bottom of the ocean that filled up the waters in the ocean? How did he know that? You see, and we just keep going. How did, how did Job know that out in space it's frozen? He says it's frozen like a stone. How did he know that? We know today that it's about, what, 457 degrees minus Fahrenheit? Out, when you get out of space, you'd think it'd get hotter the closer you get to the sun, but you lose atmosphere. How did Job know that. You see, there's some insights that the Spirit of God can give that, that we don't even think about. How, about. how about this? Columbus and all of his cohorts in terms of sailing, they all thought the world was what? Flat, right? They thought it was flat. In fact, they said it's flat. It's held up by some pillars. And if you get out there too far on that horizon, you're just going to drop off. That's it, right? Now, that was only 500 years ago. 500 years ago. But Jeremiah the prophet wrote 600 BC, that's 2,600 years ago. It says God sits above the circle of the earth and he hangs it on nothing. How did Jeremiah know that? Where did that come from? I always think it's interesting, the whole idea of evolution and how um, really the, the whole order of the species. You ever notice it's an exact copy of Genesis, the order of creation that God did? 
He culminated with man. Just ripped it off and said, let's get God out of here and let's just rip off the order of the species and plug it in there and make it work. Well, you know, you can do that, but it's just not very cool. How about predictive history? You see, God predicts things. In fact, uh, Jesus was sitting with his disciples and he says, do you see that temple down there? He said, he said there's gonna be no stone overturned. It's gonna be destroyed. And they're looking at this temple and these big foundation stones on the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. They're some, some six and eight feet long and they're, they're about two feet thick and they weigh thousands of pounds. And they're looking at Jesus like, really? Who's gonna move those? Well, 70 AD, uh, Titus, the Roman emperor, rides into Jerusalem, and he destroys uh, Jerusalem, and they burned the Jewish temple, but they burned it too quick because they forgot to take the gold out of the Jewish temple. Well, when it burned to the ground, the 30,000 Roman soldiers that showed up that day, they said, you know what, wait a minute, let's get the gold, the melting gold that went down into the cracks of those big foundation stones, and they moved all those stones out of the way so that they could get the gold out of it, thus fulfilling a prophecy spoken 40 years earlier by Jesus himself. Kind of interesting, isn't it? I could go on with these all day long because there are thousands of examples in the scripture to this. How about historical evidence? There's a guy, a very famous archeologist from Great Britain, uh, Sir William Ramsey, and, and Ramsey was, was a critic of the Bible. He wasn't a Christian, never did become a Christian to my knowledge, but he always said the Bible wasn't true. Someone challenged him to take the book of Luke, and Luke was the writer of Luke and the book of Acts, and check it out historically. His conclusion was that Luke was a gifted uh, historian. In fact, he should be rated in the top 10 historians of all time. Never became a Christian. Someone challenged him. They were trying, trying to find different lost cities like Jericho and so forth. And so he took the Bible, he used it as a roadmap, and he came to the conclusion that the Bible is the most accurate document of antiquity. Now, he wasn't a Christian, but it was the accuracy of the Bible that we, we oftentimes get people say, well, I don't think the Bible's really true. I don't know if it's true, all those kind of things. There's a process when you're a historian where you can take the number of documents, let's say like the Bible, there's 5,213 documents of the Bible, ancient documents. You take all of those, and you take the number of contradictions in them, and you take all the, what the skeptics said about those same kind of things, and you come up with a, with a conclusion, a percentage of the accuracy that, that person actually existed or did what he did. So they do that with Napoleon. There's about a 38% chance there was a Napoleon. I believe in Napoleon. Anybody here believe in Napoleon? I think there was a French emperor over there named Napoleon, okay? Okay, well, let's see. We do it George Washington. How many believe in George Washington? George Washington's on the quarter. He's got to be real, right? Okay, you do the same thing, historical analysis on George Washington. There's about a 75% chance there was a George Washington. Yet I believe in George Washington. All right, let's just make it a little bit more difficult. Let's take Jesus, but not just that he lived and, and born and all that stuff. Let's take specifically his death, burial, and resurrection. We'll take the biblical account. Then we'll take everything that every skeptic, whether it was Greek, Jewish, or whatever, wrote about Jesus and in unbelief. And, and what kind of percentages do we come up? 98% chance Jesus Christ died, buried, and rose from the dead. Now, you can, you can hear all that, believe it as a historian, and never become a Christian. All right, you're sitting in a jury. Judge comes out and he says, I'm gonna instruct the jury. Here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna hear evidence. I want you to listen very carefully because you're gonna determine the fate of this individual. Guilty, innocent. 
What you're going to do is you're really, you can't know with absolute truth, but you're going to take what you hear and you're going to make a decision based on the probability of guilt here. So all of a sudden you go in the back room there and you go, you know, all the evidence here, it weighs, this guy is guilty. Probability. If I take the word of God, what's the probability of it being correct? Science, correct. History, correct. Predictive history, correct. So what I've got to do is I've got to move from my mind into my heart. I've got to make a spiritual decision. I've got to have a conversion. I've got to encounter God to actually know God. Because you can know about God and not know God. You can know about marriage and not be married. Right? You can go to church and not be a Christian. Just like you, you, you walk into a garage, you're not a car. Right? So there has to be something transformational that happens. Well, the Bible is everlasting. Listen to what Jesus said, Matthew 24, verse uh, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. They by no means will pass away. He says, I don't care what time you're in, it's always gonna be relevant. He goes on to say, Matthew chapter four, verse four, Satan comes, he tries to tempt Jesus, and uh, Jesus has been fasting 40 days, he's hungry. He says, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Pretty good temptation when you're hungry, right? I'm a little hungry. Anybody hungry? Raise your hand if you're hungry. That's good. All right, I, wanna, I don't want to be alone here. Okay, look what he says. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. See, you can physically live your life with bread, but you don't really live unless you have the word of God because it feeds your soul. It gets inside of you. It does something inside of you. How about Psalm 119, verses 89 and 90? Let's look at this. Forever, how long? Forever, O Lord, your word is what? Settled in heaven. Settled. Have you ever had your parents say to you when you were young, or if you are young, your parents say something like, that's my final answer? Don't go see your dad. Don't go see your mom. Done. You know they mean it when it comes to that place. It's the equivalent of using your middle name, which... Parents invented only for, to get you in trouble. There's no other purpose for a middle name or to satisfy some relative, right? But anyway, I remember one time my grandmother, and she was a farmer, and, and she was, like, tough. And I said something smart like to her. I was about third or fourth grade. I said something smart like to her, and she took out running after me, which I thought was hilarious because she was not exactly an agile woman, if you know what I'm talking about. And so I, I was running, and she grabbed the broom, and I, and I hit it, I hit uh, went to the bedroom, and I rolled underneath the bed, and I'm laughing under there because she can't get under the bed. She takes the broom, not the wooden part, but the bristle side, and she just starts ramming just those bristles into my legs and my arms. I mean, it was, it was definitely cruelty, you know what I mean? But I was crying, stop, girl, I got the point. Her word was settled. God's word is settled. You may not like it. You may not agree with it. You may not know it. God's word is settled in heaven. It is fixed in eternity. It is everlasting unto everlasting. Amen? Amen. All right. Now, I, I don't know the origin of this. It's uh, never been documented who wrote this, but I love it. I'm just going to go through it with you. The Bible contains the mind of God, the way of salvation, the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true, and its decisions are unchangeable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe. Practice it to be holy. It contains light to cheer you. It's a traveler's map. 
our food to support you and comfort you. Uh, it's a traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, the Christian's charter. Here paradise is restored, heaven is open, the gates are disclosed. Christ is its grand subject. Our good, its design. The glory of God, its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is a mind of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given to you in life, will be open at judgment, will be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, rewards the greatest labor, and condemns all who trifle with its holy contents. You see, the Bible changes lives. See, if you have been changed by the power of God, you've been changed by the Word of God working in conjunction with the Spirit of God. You heard the Word, and all of a sudden your mind said, I'll consider it, the Spirit of God showed up and began his work of convincing you of, about God. And you were then transformed by it. Once transformed, you have to be fed by it. So you read it, you study it, you live it. You see, Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says this. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, you realize that God has salvation come by words? He spoke the world into existence in Genesis. He sent the living word, Jesus. He gave us the written word, and he said, if you're gonna come to faith in Christ, you're gonna use your words. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in our heart that God has what? Raised him from the dead. Now look at it, look at it really carefully. It says you might get saved. What's it say? What? You will get, maybe you'll get saved. Well, don't be so radical. I mean, aren't you kind of narrow-minded? See, this is the promise of God. You will be saved. You will be saved. You will be saved. You see, that's what God wants to do. He wants to save us from our sins. He didn't make salvation based on how good you are, because then we'd compare ourselves to one another. Let's suppose it took five points to get into heaven. You got five, your neighbor got six, you'd be boasting all eternity about six. Guess what, we all came in exactly the same way. Bankrupt, broken spiritually, redeemed by the blood of the lamb. How good is that? Hey, you know what, God took away all comparisons. You know, we like to describe ourselves, he's a really good Christian, he's not such a good Christian. No, you're either Christian or not a Christian. You're either walking with God, you're not walking with God. But there ain't no, there ain't no, there ain't no levels in Christians, amen? All right, so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna stand together. I preached the sermon in record speed. You shouldn't clap about that. You should go like, oh, don't stop, pastor, don't stop. Okay, here's what I wanna do. Um, I'm gonna put a prayer up on the screens here. If you're gonna get baptized, you can slip over to that wall over there and we're gonna have baptism, but I wanna put a prayer up here on the wall and I'm gonna ask everyone to pray this. You say, I've already, I'm already a Christian, I've already prayed it, that's fine. But I, I think there's something that happens that helps when we all do this. Some of you are, are not a Christian and you know that. Some of you are not certain if you're a Christian, um, if you've ever really been saved. So I want you to know this prayer is just words unless you couple it with faith. And when you couple it with faith, it becomes transformational. It becomes something that changes you. It's that life of God deposited in you. Amen? 
So let's just say this together. I'll, I'll say it and then you can repeat after me. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I ask you for forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins. Don't give up on me now. You're getting quiet on me. Let's try it again. I turn from my sins. I invite you to come into my heart and my life. I want to trust you and follow you as my Lord and Savior. In your name, amen. All right, now just let me have your attention for one minute. If that was your prayer, and you just entered into the kingdom, you just said, you know, I really prayed that for the first time and meant it, I want you right now, just in your own words, just to thank God right where you, right where you stand or sit. Just thank him for saving you, because that's what he did. He said he will save you. If you are a Christian and you, and you prayed that, why don't you just take a moment and thank him for your salvation, amen? And tell somebody else the good news about Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection, amen? All right, if that was your prayer, God bless you. We'd love to, to engage with you. We really believe that discipleship is the key, getting in the Word of God and loving God. Amen?